morning. My name uh, is Scott Irwin, for those of you who don't know. I'm the director of campus life here at Bethel Hope Reportage. Uh, when I first got hired in for this position, it said director of campus life, and I had no idea what that was. But I was like, ah, Bethel's an awesome church. I want to be a part of it. Still figuring out what a director of campus life does, but one thing I do know that I do, fills my, my weeks and my days, is I oversee Verge uh, Student Ministries here, which is awesome. Verge is awesome, and I see a bunch of middle school, high school students, and we have a bunch of fun. This summer has been an absolute blast for us. Uh, last week, last week, there were a ton of us that met in Festival Park, and we had a picture scavenger hunt all through downtown Hobart. So uh, if you were asked last week in downtown Hobart to take a picture with a bunch of teens carrying a flag, I'm not sorry. We, we had so much fun. Um, Verge has been such a, a cool ministry to be a part of here at Bethel as a whole. It's across all of our campuses. Um, and, and it exists to help students feel wanted and welcomed and loved and to help them take their next step with Jesus. And so, so whatever that is, whatever that next step is, whether that's um, trusting in Christ for the first time as their Savior or following Him in baptism, wh- whatever that next step is, we exist to help students do that. Uh, but one thing that I've found here is that there's a, a cap to, to my ability, and, and I cannot serve in youth ministry without the help of some volunteers. And last week, last week, we had this picture scavenger hunt, and I'm not going to lie, I was a little terrified. We're going to, like, unleash 30 students into downtown Hobart, how are we going to make sure this is safe and we don't lose anybody and that, you know, things don't get broken. And it's because we have a bunch of volunteers that help out at Verge, and they are fantastic. They are fantastic. There's uh, 18 of us, we have 18 volunteers that serve during the programming year, but I just wanted to take a second to thank the people who helped last week. Um, we had Jamie Taves come out, Dave Wachter came out, his team lost, sorry about that Dave. Uh, Lori Rodriguez, their team won, good job Lori, and, uh, and my wife Bethany. And we had a blast serving uh, last week. But if I've, if I've learned one thing in youth ministry, I think this is the funny thing about youth ministry, that sometimes, maybe oftentimes, you feel like you aren't getting anywhere with students. You feel like you're spinning your tires in the mud. There are hours and hours spent with students. There's conversation after conversation have, and you're still not entirely sure that you're making any kind of progress, that the gospel is having any kind of uh, significant impact in their life, or really, you're not even sure if they like you. Like, at the end of the day, middle school, high school parents, you can understand that. But then, like, out of nowhere, there's a breakthrough with a student. And then all of that time spent, all of those conversations had, all of the emotions invested into this relationship, it becomes worth it. It becomes worth it. But it wasn't always easy, right? Oftentimes, uh, I wonder, I know my volunteers wonder if their time is well spent at all or if they're making any kind of an impact. And this morning, we're going to look at using our gifts for the good of the body and some of the struggles that come along with that. We're going to see that service is more than just a task when it comes to the body of Christ. We've been in our our series, This is HP. We've been uh, pursuing unity together. We're striving for unity. We're striving for proper discipleship under the Son, under Jesus Christ. 
Uh, right? We want to be more than a crowd. We want to be a family. This is what the body of Christ is calling us to do, right? We want um, you, we want people to step out of the crowd and into the family here at Bethel HP. But if there's anything that I know about families, it's this, that families have problems. Can I get an amen? And families have priorities, right? Maybe you could take a second to think about some of the priorities that your family had maybe growing up or some of the priorities that your family has right now. You're saying, yeah, that's the truest thing I've heard all day. My family's got problems. I could tell you, I could sit here for hours. My family's got issues from what are they, big problems to little problems. Each of our families have their own unique set of issues, their own unique weirdness. My family, uh, for instance, growing up, uh, had very, very little sympathy for pain, okay? So uh, you were more likely to be laughed at when you hurt yourself than to be asked if you were okay. It's a, it's a problem, and it actually, that has actually carried over into marriage, and I had to unlearn a lot of things. I had to unlearn a lot of things. Um, I think, though, that what I have also seen in, in our family is that different families have different priorities. Your family prioritizes things that another family might not. I think some of these are spoken and, and others are unspoken. Some of the, the phrases, maybe you could think of the phrases that you heard over and over again when you were, you were growing up or those phrases now that you're a parent that you keep continuing to say to your, your child. Uh, some of the phrases that I heard growing up were, uh, go big or go home, right? Go big or go home. And then they would laugh at you when you went big and went home. Or I heard uh, often, second is the first loser. Second is the first loser. Yeah, so you can understand the competitive nature that I grew up in. Maybe your family has some of these sayings, but I think oftentimes the, the biggest priorities are the unspoken ones. It's just the culture that your family has. It's just who you are, who you are as a family. Uh, maybe some of these priorities might be uh, like let it all out, these unspoken priorities. Let it all out. No matter um, what our family functions by just putting it all out there, right? No matter what needs to be said, uh, there's no care taken for how it's said or when it's said or who it's said to. Uh, the fact is that my feelings need to get out in the open, so I'm just going to let it all out there. Or maybe uh, conversely, your family's unspoken priority was bottle it all up. Feelings aren't even a real thing. Just shove them down deep enough so that they condense and explode out in a midlife crisis like in 30 years, right? Whatever your family, your family's got priorities, spoken or unspoken. Problems and priorities, we all have them in our families, and our church family is no different. Our church family is no different. Problems come up in our church family, but what we're going to find today that these spoken and unspoken priorities determine how these problems are solved, and whether or not our church is functioning as it should. One thing, uh, before I get into the text this morning, you can join me there. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. If you have your Bible, you can turn there and, and uh, dig into God's Word with me this morning. But one thing before we, we dig into this text, when you hear the word church this morning, 
I want us to think primarily about people, not the building. Think about a person, not the place. I believe that when we think about the church as a place, which is so easy to do, I believe that it robs us, it it robs the church of its power in the community. I think that Satan has worked really hard to lead us to believe that the church is a building, but maybe you can think of it like this. Um, Your family is a family no matter where you go. Just because you're not in your home does not mean that you stop being a family. You carry all of your problems, you carry all of your priorities with you wherever you go, and so does this church body. The church is more than a building, it's people. This morning we're going to look at a few problems that the early church faced, but I want us to go into the text this morning with an understanding of of the importance of a healthy church. Why should we even care that our church is healthy? Right? What's riding on the health of this body of Christ? Why is it so important? In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see an early church that does uh, three things, a church body that does three things. It problem solves well, it prioritizes correctly, and it provides opportunity for service. So there are problems, priorities, and opportunities for service. And we're going to see that the outcome of all these three things, what's the outcome of a healthy church? Why should we care? Is it so that we can continue to pay rent on this building, that we can keep the lights on? Is that why we want our church to be healthy? Is it so that we can uh, continue to build relationships with the people in this room? We want uh, a healthy church so that people will stay. We continue to build friends. What is it? Why do we want a healthy church? Why should we be concerned that our church is healthy? Well, I want us to start with the end of this passage with with the goal in mind. The outcome of a healthy church is given in verse 7. So Acts chapter 6, verse 7, you can read along. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In short, a healthy church, what a healthy church does, we are dealing with the glory of God, we're dealing with the salvation of the lost, and we're dealing with the fame of Jesus Christ. And these are no small things. The glory of God, the salvation of the lost, and the fame of Jesus Christ, this is what rides on the health of our church. This is why it's so important that our church be healthy. This is what we're fighting for this morning. We want this church to be a light, to be a witness to a community, to Hobart and to Portage, communities that desperately need to know that there's salvation from sin, that there's a better way to live. This is what we're going to look at this morning. This is why it's so important that our church is healthy. So let's dig into this passage this morning. We're going to read about a problem, a couple problems that the early church faced and how it was solved, what the outcome was. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. This is the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. There was complaining in the church because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And so these men, they sat before the apostles, they prayed and they laid hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As we dig into the record of the early church, we're going to highlight three things here. We're going to see two problems that the early church faced, how they went about solving these problems. We're going to see some of the priorities of the early church. What did the early church care about? What should we care about? And we're going to see how the early church served one another. Verse 1, it starts, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. We've been working through the book of Acts here in this series. This is HP. And I want to remind us where we are in the book of Acts. And if you remember, uh, this book has been written by Luke to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus was asking this question, what's, what's going on here? He had heard about this man named Jesus. He had heard about these people, these Christians, this church, and he wanted to know what was going on here. And so Luke did research, wrote two books, and he wrote one book, Acts, which follows the explosive growth of the early church after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And, and the growth of the church is broken up into three different sections. So Luke structures this in three different sections that's laid out in, in Acts 1.8. Jesus says to the disciples that you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in this city right here, in Judea and Samaria, these surrounding regions, and to the ends of the earth. And so we get these concentric circles as the church continues to grow and expand as God said it would. Here in Acts 6, we're still in Jerusalem. The church is still developing in Jerusalem. And uh, by the time of these events were recorded, there were probably over 10,000 disciples of Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem alone. 10,000 people. So many people. And, and this is true, I think, of anything, really, that the, the larger something gets, the more complicated it is to run. And the early church was no different. And here we're introduced to two significant problems. We're going to try to learn something here about how the early church solved their problems. So what was this first problem? Uh, the rest of verse 1 reads, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And one thing I have learned is that you do not want to mess with somebody's grandma. Whether adopted or biological, you don't want to mess with grandma, right? Bad things happen. And this is what was happening here. There were widows being neglected in the daily distribution of bread. And, and I think, firstly, firstly, we shouldn't be immediately concerned when a problem comes up in church, when there is an issue that comes up in church, it, it is the natural result of sin and sin nature that we are, are working and living and striving in a fallen world that when people 
get together in pursuit of a common goal, there's going to be some issues, right? You could, uh, you could go to your HOA meeting or an open mic parent night at a school and see this very plainly, right? Not pretty. It is what we prioritize when we are faced with problems that will determine whether there's continued growth, gospel expansion, or continuing issues. And remember what's riding on a healthy church here in Acts 6, the glory of God, the salvation of the lost, and the fame of Jesus Christ. This is important to figure out. This is important to get correct. And maybe we could step um, away from the local church and, and into our individual lives for a moment. I know that there's a lot of people here in this room right now that have uh, had less than the ideal summer, maybe to say it plainly. But I want to remind you that problems in your life do not mean that you're headed in the wrong direction or that God has deserted you. I think it's simply a reminder of the fact that we live in a fallen world and that God is continuing to sanctify you and make you more like his son, Jesus Christ. But I can guarantee you this. I can guarantee you this. That if you are pursuing Christ, then you had best believe that Satan is at work in your life to destroy and disrupt. Satan is at work in your life to destroy and disrupt. Why should Satan care to bring suffering and temptation against you before you began following Christ? You were exactly where Satan wanted you to be. You had no knowledge of any kind of danger that you were in. You had no knowledge that there was salvation out there. You were right where he wanted you to be. I think it's only after our salvation that Satan attempts to make us as useless to the kingdom as possible. It's only after our salvation that Satan attempts to drown us in feelings of uselessness and inadequacy to the body of Christ. At my uh, previous church, I worked with middle school students. I was a director of middle school students, and it was awesome. I love middle school students. They're at this time, they're at this incredibly awesome and awful time in their life where they're like learning about that there are girls out there, but that they still want to love mom, and it's like, it's incredible, right? Hormones are raging. It's awesome, but it's awful at the same time. And so I would often talk through... uh, problems with students, with middle school students, and if you've ever had a conversation with a middle school student, sometimes it's fantastic, and sometimes it's like terrible, and it can swing at the, at the push of a button. And I was talking with this, this student, this young man, and I will not lie to you, it's not often that any kind of deep and profound wisdom comes out of the mouth of a middle school student, but, but when it does, when it does, Like, it deserves to be written down. And so that's what I'm doing. I wrote it down. I remember talking to this middle school student. uh, He's been going through a lot. And we were talking about how pursuing God is like our ultimate goal in life, that we should be pursuing Christ in every aspect of our life. But that it's really hard to do that when bad things happen in our life. We're in the midst of this conversation. And it's going, I thought it was going really well. And I'll never forget what he said uh, in the middle of this conversation, he goes, oh, so it's kind of like video games. Like, oh, we're so close, right? We're so close. It's kind of like video games. I said, what do you mean? He says, yeah, in video games, you know you're going in the right direction 
when there's a lot of enemies in front of you? Oh my gosh, that was amazing. Right? Out of the mouth of babes. That was incredible. I wrote it down just for this moment right here. But, but, but I, think he's, I think he's on to something, right? He's on to something. And when we're pursuing Christ, we should, not be, uh, we should not be concerned that there's problems in our life. That does not mean we're going in the wrong direction, that God has deserted you. And maybe if, if you don't play video games, uh, here's another illustration. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he, he wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters, and it follows the life of two demons. And these demons are writing letters back and forth. One demon's name is Screwtape, the other demon's name is Wormwood. And Screwtape uh, is writing letters to Wormwood because Wormwood has been entrusted with leading the soul of this young man into hell. And Wormwood wants to know how to do that best, how to do that easiest, and so Screwtape is writing to him on how to do that. And one of the things that Screwtape writes to his nephew Wormwood, he says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Problems do not mean that God has deserted you. It means that the enemy is hard at work trying to disrupt your sanctification. Problems do not mean that God has forgotten you. It means that the flesh is trying to make you useless to the kingdom of God. And, and we know, we're encouraged from Isaiah 54, that, that we know that in the hands of God, no, no weapon forged against us will prosper, but, but make no mistake, the weapon will be forged against you. Do not be discouraged when difficulties come, because wherever God is at work, the enemy is close behind. And this is true of our individual lives. This is true of this church body right here. And this is true of the early church we see in Acts. So what's, what's going on here in Acts? What's the problem that's threatening the early church? What's the problem that's uh, threatening their unity, that's threatening their witness in the city? I think that there are two problems here in Acts for the early church. And the first of them is this. The first is this, that people were being excluded. People were being excluded. There were widows being neglected in the daily distribution of bread. And this distribution of bread, before the church was established, uh, before Pentecost, before Jesus walked to this earth, there was a system in place in Jerusalem for Jewish peoples. It was set by Jewish leaders. Uh, there were many widows that would come to Jerusalem at the end of their life. Their spouses died. They would come to Jerusalem and they would uh, live out their lives there in the temple in prayer. And they had no one to care for their daily needs. They had no way to make money. They had no way to buy food or get clothing. And so there was a system that was set in place to support them and, and provide their daily needs. Uh, this system seems to have been carried over into this new Christian community, and it was not running so smoothly. For one reason or another, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were overlooked in favor of the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows. One thing I want us to notice here and to, to dig into, that this is not, on the surface, I think this looks like a, a racial issue, and, and this is not necessarily a racial issue here in the early church. These are not two different people groups with different heritage because uh, both of them are Jewish, 
They're both of Jewish heritage. One group were Jews who had lived in Greek-speaking places long enough that they didn't speak Hebrew anymore. Or didn't speak, yeah, speak Hebrew anymore. The other were those Jewish people who did speak Hebrew. And so this is not necessarily a racial divide that's coming up in the church, but it is a social divide. There's a language difference here that is causing a divide and a division in the body of Christ, and this is a breeding ground for the enemy. Uh, If you've ever dealt with rot in your home or rust on your car, you have an understanding of the possible danger that the early church is in here. Uh, I didn't know, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, my family owns a boat business in, in Valpo. They sell and service boats. I've been doing it for like three generations, and I'm the black sheep and decided to go be a pastor. Um, and if you also didn't know, uh, Dan Jacobson owns a boat. Dan Jacobson owns a boat. It's not doing so hot right now, but it is a boat. Uh, it's, I think it's like a 96 Bayliner, it's, it's mid-90s. Yes. And uh, this boat, these old boats, they were often made with a wood subfloor. So they put a wood subfloor down, they put carpet over it. And they're also made with wooden stringers. And the stringer of the boat is what gives structure and stability to the hull of the boat. Okay, they're kind of important. And when rot seeps into a boat, there's significant problems. Uh, Dan, I think last fall, noticed some soft spots in his floor, and he thought, I should probably pull that out of the water, I should get it into my house, and I'll just redo the floor. Super easy, plywood carpet, be done like that. It was not done like that. I think it's still in your garage. Still in his garage. It has not seen the light of day for like 12 months. Dan found a little piece of rot back by the engine compartment, Okay, you pull up carpet, found some rot. And so he went to my dad, and my dad has been doing this for his entire life, and he's seen a lot of boats, seen a lot of bad boats, seen a lot of boats that probably need to be put, put to bed. And uh, Dan came and, and was talking to my dad, and when there's a little bit of rot in a boat, there's oftentimes a lot of rot in a boat. And Dan came to him and said, you know, hey, here's my problem, what are my options? And my dad looked at him and said, looked at the boat, or I kind of knew what the boat was, and, and he said, well, here's what I can do. I have an excavator out back. I can dig a hole. We could put your boat in it. <laughs> that was the extent of the damage of this boat, and, and Dan went off and said, this boat can be fixed. And so he has been attempting to fix this boat, and I think you're getting close. I think it's going to happen. Not close. <laughs> Just kidding, it's not close. Floor pulled up. Rot had gotten into the stringers of the boat, into the foundation of the boat. Rot had seeped in everywhere. And division, all because there was a little seal around the engine compartment where water could drip in. Division is where rot seeps into a community of believers. Division is where rot seeps into a community of believers. We need to remember that we are pursuing a similar goal here. That we shouldn't let our small differences obstruct the expansion of the kingdom. There is no place in church for division because of race or language. There's no socioeconomic characteristic that should cause someone to be excluded from the body of Christ. Because at at its core, that's what's happening here in Acts. That people were being excluded because of a difference of language. 
It shouldn't matter what language you speak or what's in your bank account or what has happened in your past. The body of Christ comes together under the authority of the Son. It comes together in a similar belief that the gospel is powerful enough to change lives. We come together under a common faith, not commonality. We come together under a common faith, not commonality. But what we find here is that the exclusion of the widows was not the only problem that the church faced. There was a second, maybe more significant problem that the early church faced here in Acts, and it is this, that the spread of the gospel was threatened. The spread of the gospel was threatened. We read in verse 2. So there was a problem. The widows were uh, being overlooked. People were being excluded from the body of Christ. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And I want to dig into this answer a little bit because I think there's some things behind the scenes that that aren't recorded here in Acts that uh, can teach us. This, This answer it assumes a question that was asked. And I'll do my best to share my vision of what went down when this problem was brought to the apostles. Somebody whose adopted grandma was getting overlooked in the daily distribution of bread and said, hey, there are widows that are being missed out in the daily distribution. What should we do about it? And somebody else said, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. That's been on my heart as well. Why don't we have the apostles hand out the bread. Yeah, it's their job to do it, right? Why don't we have the apostles run this ministry? Sound familiar? Right? Somebody came to the apostles and told them this problem, and it looks like they expected them not just to find the solution, but to be the solution. A church that has a few people running every ministry is an ineffective church and their ability for growth becomes capped. A church that only has a few people working for the kingdom of God, serving the body of Christ, whose members are being robbed of an opportunity to pursue maturity in Christ. The second problem we find in this passage is an attempted short-sighted solution. The apostles understood the engine that was driving this uh, ridiculous growth in the early church. It is the preaching of the word and prayer. The apostles didn't want to give this up to serve tables. They didn't want to give up what they were doing to step into another ministry. uh, A ministry that was just as important, I want to make that clear, just as important. But the apostles didn't want to give up this ministry. And Why didn't they want to give up this ministry, this preaching of the word and prayer? Were they uh, power hungry, right? Did they see serving tables as uh, beneath their station? This is, I don't think this is what we find at all because uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who was an apostle, part of the church in Jerusalem when this problem came about, he wrote uh, later, a few years later in James' run, this is what James had to say. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
You can imagine that maybe James had this situation in the early church of Jerusalem in mind when he, when he wrote these words in James chapter 1. It's not that the apostles thought this was beneath them, but rather that this was not the best solution to the problem. It would have been misprioritization. It would have uh, stripped the church of its power to grow, to grow and to, to spread the word of Jesus. Apostles aren't saying that the widows are unimportant. Rather, they're saying that the ministry of the word and prayer is so important that we need to find a solution to this problem of people being excluded. It would have been a missed opportunity to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so what do we do when problems arise? When problems arise in your family, they're often solved by these priorities. What do you prioritize? So there was a problem here that people were being excluded, that the spread of the gospel was being threatened. And we find two priorities that come out here in Acts chapter 6. We read in verse 3 and we find the first priority. Therefore, brothers, because of this problem, because widows were being overlooked and, and we want to prioritize preaching of the word, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The first priority we see here, the priorities that the apostles established, was preaching the word and prayer. They say here we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What, what is this? What is the ministry of the word? This is what the apostles did with their time. They did it in church. They did it in public. They did it with the disciples who were already following Jesus, the ministry of the word. And I think uh, we can take what um, Luke writes in Acts 8.12 as explanation. In Acts 8.12 it says, But when they believed Philip, and here it is, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. This is the ministry of the word. Here's what the apostles are saying by prioritize, uh, prioritizing preaching of the word and prayer. They're saying that yes, physical needs of the people in this church are important, but we also care that the word of God is preached. We care that there are people in this city, in this congregation, who need to hear the fact that there is salvation from the power and the penalty of sin, and that there is a better way to live. This is what the church is called to today as well. And you might be skeptical about the effectiveness of preaching to change lives, and if that is true, then I think you underestimate the power of God's word to us. I think if that is true, then uh, you, you haven't been paying attention to what's been going on here at Bethel HP over the past few months. Because over the past few months, we have seen people who should never have come to Christ come to Christ because they sat under the preaching of God's word. But you know this. You know, maybe, maybe not preaching changes or affects change, but you know that, that knowledge changes how you act and how you feel. Uh, I can tell you times when what I have learned significantly changed how I act and how I felt. Uh, one, one night in particular changed the entire course of my life. Easter of 2016, I was driving this, 
this girl home. Uh, we had been hanging out with friends, and I was driving her home. I was going to drop her off at her parents' house, and we had been uh, dancing around each other for a few months. I would say I was covering my bases. She would say that I was dragging my feet. But I, I needed to know for sure, and this was the moment. And so, uh, life, life pro tip, if you need to ask somebody something important, do it in a car because you don't have to make eye contact. So I was making sure not to make eye contact, to make this as you know, painless as possible. I didn't have to look at her if she said you know, what I didn't want to hear. But I needed to know for sure. And so making sure not to make eye contact, I said, hey, heart pounding on my chest, I kind of like you. You know, super bold and brave, just got it all out there. <laughs> I kind of like you. But, but what I learned next changed the entire direction of my life. I kind of like you too. Right? And from then on, you fast forward a year and a half, and I was married to my wife, Bethany. Knowledge changes how you act and how you feel. And this, in preaching, when coupled with the Holy Spirit, working in a person to convict them of sin and impress on them their need for a Savior, creates change. God's Word affects change. It is powerful. Just as God spoke and the universe exploded into being, so too can God speak and revive a dead soul. Just as God spoke and the oceans were created, so too can God speak and change your life. Are you listening? Are you listening when God speaks? When the church functions as it should, the kingdom of God is established. People's lives are changed. We are all part of something bigger than ourselves here. We are part of the establishment of the kingdom. And I think some of you might, might be sitting here this morning. Some people might think that uh, you have no gift to give the body of Christ. This might be how you currently feel you think you have nothing to, to offer the body or that you don't have time to serve. You might think that your service has no real impact, right? That, that, that what you're doing, uh, it doesn't really matter. And this is entirely untrue. And this is not at all what we see here in Acts 6 and throughout the rest of Acts. Service to the body of Christ is more than just a task. Men, here in Acts chapter 6, there were seven men chosen to be the solution to this problem of people being excluded from the body of Christ. We're going to see here uh, that these seven men's faithful service of simply handing out food was part of preparing probably the greatest missionary and church planter that the church has ever seen. The apostle Paul, before he was an apostle, began his career as a persecutor of the church. He was a persecutor of the church, but he met the risen Christ on his travels, and he was brought to the apostles. He was brought to the men here who uh, established these seven men to serve, same apostles. He was brought to them. This man, Paul, was brought to them, and Paul began preaching the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, claiming him to be the Son of God, the risen Savior. 
This is an amazing example of what a properly functioning church is capable of. It's capable of incredible life change, of deploying people for the glory of God. But Paul was equipped to do this by the apostles because they were able to spend time with him and disciple him. And they were able to spend time with him and disciple him because they were not overseeing the daily distribution of bread to the widows. And they were able to, uh, they were not overseeing the daily distribution of bread to the widows because Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and others were doing it. It was because of these men's silent and faithful service to the body of Christ that Paul was able to be discipled, that other men and women were able to see the risen Savior in the preaching of the word of God. Do, do you see the chain? Do you see the chain here? The men who passed out bread might have felt like their job was, was menial, it was just a task, but they were part of something bigger than themselves. You see the intricacies of a healthy church. And it works, it works in reverse as well, right? Imagine a widow who has nobody in her life, who has moved to a new city, who is living in Jerusalem and is entirely dependent on the church for her daily food, for the clothing that she puts on her back. This is a priority and something that God cares about, so the church should care about it as well. But this widow was taken care of because there were men who were empowered and whose time was freed up to do so. Their time was freed up because others were publicly preaching the word of God. People serving the body of Christ allows the church to function as it should. So what does it look like in the church today? Well, there are dozens upon dozens of ways to serve here at Bethel HP, all of them important, all of them vital to the spread of the gospel here in Portage and Hobart. Uh, what, what does a baby, what does holding a baby have to do with somebody hearing the name of Jesus for the first time? Everything. What does mentoring high school students have to do with somebody taking their next step of obedience and baptism? Everything. What does playing bass on Sunday mornings have to do with somebody experiencing life change through the gospel? Everything. We are more than the sum of our parts here in this body of Christ. There is no menial task when it comes to serving this body. A healthy, functioning church requires that its members use their gifts so that the ministry of the word can continue and so that excluded people might be seen. Very specifically here in Acts 6, we see people using their time and their talents to care for excluded people. Two priorities that came out of the two problems. The apostles prioritized the preaching of the word and prayer. First priority. The second priority is that excluded people would be seen and taken care of. We are called to see excluded people. The apostles cared about the preaching of the word and prayer, but they also cared that excluded people would be seen. The apostles didn't say that care for widows was not a priority, but they, they needed help from other people to solve this problem. God cares for the downtrodden. 
He cares for the brokenhearted. He cares for those people who feels like uh, the needs of life are crushing them. These are the people we are called to see, and these are the people that are being cared for by the church in Acts 6. These are the people that we are called to care for in our lives as well. I think it's so easy to overlook people who society overlooks. But we are not following society. We are following a Christ who says that everybody and anybody deserves to be seen. Do you see excluded people in your life? And maybe take this as, as motivation that, that you, at one point, were excluded from relationship with God because of your sin. And God saw you in your need and came to you in the person of Jesus Christ and forgave you and gave you life and purpose. In the same way, we are called to see excluded people so that they might experience life change because of what God has done for them. I think one really cool way that Bethel Hope Reportage is doing this is through our specific needs ministry. And this was the, the brainchild of a few attenders and uh, of Carrie Corbin. It's been running silently in the background of our children's ministry for about six months now. This ministry has been incredible and has given families who have had difficulty coming to church because they had no place for their kid, a place to call home, a place to be ministered to. How awesome is that? That we have seen people that society might overlook. And in caring for them, the word of God is able to be preached over their lives. When the church is functioning as it should, when people are using their gifts for the good of the body, when we work together to see excluded people, incredible things happen. Let's look in verse 7. What are these things? We'll end where we started. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The ministry of the word increased. More and more people were able to hear the good news that Jesus Christ died for their sin, and that their salvation, we have salvation from not only the penalty, but also the power of sin. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. More people became obedient to Jesus Christ. More people came to see Christ not only as their Savior, but also as their Lord. Lives were placed under the authority of Christ. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, these, these priests were those Jewish men who came and served at the temple in Jerusalem. They were religious to their core, and many at one point were hostile to the early church. We see in Acts 4, as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, these same priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And, and here is truth. Here's truth. When the church is functioning as it should, people who should never find salvation find salvation. When the ministry of the word is prioritized, people who care nothing for Christ find Christ. When excluded people are seen, people who are hostile to the gospel become humbled before God. This is the power of the church. We find that service to the body of Christ is so much more than just a task. It's an opportunity for us to come alongside God in his plan to save and reconcile these two towns, Hobart and Portage, this region, 
It's an opportunity to come alongside God and be changed ourselves in the process. Three things here as we close. What have we learned from Acts chapter 6? How can we apply this to our lives? What should we walk away with? The first is this. You need to know that your problems matter. Know that your problems matter. Here in Acts, we see real people with real problems who are a part of the church body. God wants you to know today that your problems matter. They matter to him and they matter to us. Second, know that the ministry of the word is how life change happens. Of all the things we can prioritize here at Bethel, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. We want to reach the region with the gospel of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the word. Know that your problems matter. Know that the preaching of the word changes lives. And lastly, we want you to know and be encouraged to use your gifts for the good of the body so that this might be a healthy church. How are you using your gifts for the good of the body? How can you be a part of what God is doing here? I want to encourage you that at the end, that if you feel that your calendar is too full to serve, that you might need to reprioritize some things in your life. Remember, we are called to use our gifts for the good of the body. How are you serving people? We've been called not just to attend church, but to be church. When you face problems in your life, where do you go? When you see problems in somebody else's life, what do you do? We're called to two things here in Acts chapter 6. We're called to sit under the ministry of the word so that God might change us, and we're called to use our gifts for the good of the body so that God might be glorified.